Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 8. We are further along than chapter 8, so no one have a panic attack at turning to chapter 8. But we are going backwards just a little bit. Um, because this morning we are going to finish chapter 10 and come to the end of a long discussion. And I thought the way to do this would be to go back to the beginning of the discussion and hit the key points that Paul has made as we wrap up uh, this whole issue. And I'll start by asking you a question. Have you ever asked what you thought was a relatively simple question and received a very long-winded and detailed answer? Anybody? If you have children, you know that that happens from time to time. You can catch yourself droning on and on and on. Uh, if you ever have a little boy or little girl say, Dad, what's the difference between a boy and a girl? And you say, well, I could answer that question a whole lot of different ways, you know. Uh, and there are all kinds of questions that seem relatively straightforward. And then you start to answer them and you realize there's enough nuance in this. There's enough subtle thing, thinking involved that I'm going to have to spend a fair bit more time in this subject than I thought I was going to spend. The Corinthians have asked Paul a relatively simple question. We don't have the question. We have Paul's response. They wrote him the question. We've got his written response. Chapter 8 begins, Now concerning things offered to idols. In other words, the Corinthians asked some version of this question. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? This is not the only question they asked. We know because he's already answered a few other questions. He's got a lot more that he's going to answer in the letter. So somewhere in their initial letter they said, Dear Apostle Paul, here are some things that we don't agree on and we're struggling with. We would like for you to weigh in as the authority figure and tell us what to do and what not to do. And somewhere in that bullet point, did they use bullet points back then? Somewhere in that list was the question. Food sacrificed to idols. Can we do it? Question mark. Good or bad? Sin or not sin? And Paul of this, you know, entire letter here devotes three chapters to this question. That, I am sure, is more than what they were expecting to get. I mean, I think that there were pretty much two sides of the argument. Yes, because we're Christian people and this food isn't anything to us anymore. And no, because it was used in idol worship. We shouldn't be eating this stuff. Paul weigh in. Instead, three chapters. And you all have endured those three chapters over the long haul here for weeks on end now. And I know that you have taken studious notes and you've you just devoured and consumed all of this so that this is essentially a waste of time for you to even be here this morning. But nevertheless, in case someone out there has lost a little bit of what we've covered over the last few weeks, I want to spend just this final week on this subject and lay out the basic line of thinking with just a few key thoughts as we progress through chapters 8, 9, and 10. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? Point number one that I think Paul makes here. Verse 8 
of chapter 8 is my reference. We'll read it in a second. But point number one, food doesn't condemn us. Anybody hear that this morning and be like, yes, you know. <laughs> but that's not what he means. Well, he, at least not specifically. Food doesn't condemn us. In other words, what you eat at the dinner table does not make you evil. That's point number one. Now, at this point when the letter was read in front of the Corinthian church, one side of the aisle that thought, the question, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? Yes, is the answer. That side is probably real excited. Yes, I knew we were right about this, right? Here's Paul's reasoning. Verse 8, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. His logic behind it can be found back in verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, idols, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him. There is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. All things are through Him, including the animal and the meat and the food. So, verse 8, food doesn't condemn us. And on one side of the aisle, they're saying, okay, we've got our answer. We knew we were right about this. But Paul is not merely concerned with answering a moral question. Instead, he is very concerned with God's people being transformed into better people. God's people being transformed into better Christians. In other words, we might say, Paul is very concerned with spiritual growth. No one grows spiritually because you tell them, this is right, this is wrong. That may be valid information. We should do that. We need to know what's right and wrong. But spiritual growth does not happen by memorizing rules. Spiritual growth happens as we learn to think about things with the mind of Christ. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Paul in Romans. Do not be conformed to this world like everybody else in the world, but instead be transformed. We might call that spiritual growth. Transform. Become something other than what you are. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so Paul is going to spend a lot of time on how Christian people should think. How should Christian people think? How could they have thought through this issue in a less simplistic way? Is it good or bad? And in a way that is more in line with the Lord Jesus. And so the second point comes in verse 12. Offending the conscience of the weaker brother is sin. First point, food doesn't condemn us. You're not condemned because you put that meat sacrificed to idols in your mouth. But, offending the conscience of the weaker brother is sin. Here's verse 12. 
But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So it is not as simple as saying, okay, I can't eat that food or I can't eat that food. Instead, Paul expects that Christian people living in fellowship with one another will be sensitive to the cares and the concerns and the convictions of the brothers and sisters around them. And when we act without sensitivity to them and just bowl over uh, their conscience, their convictions with what we know to be true and offend their weaker consciences, we sin against them and we sin against Christ. There is no spiritual growth that takes place by someone learning how to ignore their conscience. What Paul is saying is we should instead be sensitive as the Spirit of God builds up inside of other people a knowledge and a freedom in that knowledge of Him and not bullrush someone's convictions with what we know to be permissible. So point number one, food doesn't condemn us, but offending the conscience of a weaker brother is sin. And not just sin against a person, but sin against Christ. Now from here, Paul launches into what would seem an entirely different train of thought. But when we read it, we realize it's not a different train of thought. The third point that he wants to make is that rights, our rights, our freedoms, might need to be laid aside so they don't hinder the gospel. And for this, he's going to use himself as an example. And in chapter 9, he says, Consider me. Don't I have as much right as any of the other apostles to bring a wife along on these journeys? And don't I have as much right to take uh, from uh, the, the, uh, the produce the, of the ministry that I'm involved in? Don't I have a right to claim a salary? And not just a salary to meet my needs, but the needs of a broader family. Don't I have these rights? And then in chapter tw or in verse 12 of chapter 9, second half of that verse, he says, Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? Those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel, but I have used none of these things. In other words, just because I'm saying that it is not wrong that you're not condemned for eating the food, that you have a right to eat whatever is in the earth and the fullness thereof, doesn't mean that it's okay to do it if it's going to hurt the convictions of a weaker brother and lead them into idolatrous sin or a compromise of their own conscience. And then look at me as an example. I lay down, he says, my Christian freedoms and rights all the time so that I don't hinder the gospel. Because, I assume, if Paul came into some country, some region, some city and starts a church 
and they take up a collection for the saints and he starts paying himself out of that collection plate, would he be doing anything wrong? He says, no. Don't I have a right to be sustained off the labor of what I'm doing? But I don't do it. Because I don't want it to hinder the work of the gospel in somebody's life. I assume he means someone might see that and think that I was only in this for the money. So I don't do it. I have a right to do it. The other apostles do it. There's nothing wrong with it, like the meat. Nothing wrong with it, but I don't do it. Why? Because I don't want to get in the way of the gospel being preached I don't want to get in the way of people being saved just so I can claim what's mine. Is it his? Yes. But I don't claim it. Point three again. Rights might need to be laid aside so that they don't hinder the gospel. Paul is not interested in a defense of brutish behavior on the grounds of Christian right and Christian freedom. Fourth point. In order to save some, we must be willing to become servants to all. In order to save some, we should be willing to become servants to all. This is verse 19 and then I'll add verse 22 to chapter 9. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I'm nobody's slave, I'm nobody's servant. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. I'm a free man. But I'll become a servant to every person I meet if it means I have a chance to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. To see them saved from the worship of some false deity. To see them redeemed from the destruction of their sin. To see their life transformed by the power of God. I'd become anybody's servant to see that. Here he is in verse 22. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Boy, he is really driving the knife in with this question. You ever ask a question and about 10 minutes into the person's answer, you're like, I never should have asked this question. You ever do that before? <laughs> you ever ask a question and, and they start off and they're really patiently explaining it to you and the more they get into it, the more they're like, oh, this was a dumb question. I should have known the answer to this already. That's what he's doing. I mean, you feel it happening, don't you? The one side of the argument saying, we knew we were right about this. And then the knife gets just dug in the rest of the way. Yeah, but how could you sin against a weaker brother who's struggling with this issue? Oh, well, I guess he has a point there. And isn't it a Christian's responsibility to lay down their own rights and freedoms in order not to get in the way of what the gospel's doing in somebody's life? Well, yeah, I guess he has a point with that too. And shouldn't we be willing to do whatever it takes to see some saved from their sin and eternal hell? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know... Fifth point, the Christian should not be taking careless liberties, but should be living a determined 
disciplined life for God. I'll say it again because I know that's a long one. I couldn't get it shorter than that, sorry. The Christian should not be taking careless liberties, careless freedoms. Oh, there's nothing wrong with this. I can do that. Oh, the Bible doesn't say this is wrong. I can do that. Oh, this is okay. It doesn't mean I'm not a Christian if I do this. No, no, no. The Christian should not be taking careless liberties, but should be living a determined, disciplined life for God. I take this from verse 12 of chapter 10 as his argument continues. Sorry, verse 24 of chapter 9. I jumped ahead. Do, not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. In other words, if you're trying to figure out what you should do and your question is, what am I allowed to do? You are not living a determined, disciplined life. If you're trying to think, hey... Can I do this? Hey, am I right about this? And your only concern is, does this violate a Bible verse? You are not living a determined life. The athlete who's preparing for a race and says, hey, can I eat this ice cream? There's no cop that's going to come bursting through the door to arrest them for putting that in their body. But if they do, they are not determinedly preparing for their race. The Christian should not be taking careless liberties, but should be living a determined, disciplined life for God. Listen to the instruction. It's an imperative. He says, run in such a way that you may obtain the price. Live your Christian life as if you were trying to win an Olympic competition. The Corinthians had their own version of the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games. They happen once every three years. We talked about this when we went through chapter 9, if this sounds vaguely familiar. They knew what it was like for these athletes to prepare. They knew what this meant. They lived in a sports culture. They knew it would be ridiculous to think of an athlete saying, I'm determinedly getting ready to race without running or without dieting or without caring. Paul plays on that with this metaphor. Run, live your life with the determined purpose to win. And he's not saying so you can get ahead financially. No, no, no. Don't do that nonsense with this verse. This is not about your personal finances and how much money you bank. Don't do that. This is about, in the context of what we are reading... A person who is willing to lay aside their liberties and freedoms in order to make as much of their life for Jesus Christ profitable as can possibly be made profitable. Paul defines that by winning those who need to be won to the Lord Jesus Christ. By seeing those built up who need to be built up in their faith. That's what this is all about. Don't violate the conscience of a weaker brother. What's that about? It's saying there's a Christian here, but he's weaker, and he needs to grow, and he needs to build up. And you should be thinking about his spiritual growth before you bowl over him with your liberties. In other words, I know this is shocking. It's not. It shouldn't be. But Paul is saying, Christian people should be very concerned about the spiritual growth of their local church members. That's what this is all about. The Corinthian church was a local church. 
with real people. And you've got Bob and you've got Dan. And Bob should not merely be concerned with doing what Bob wants to do as long as it doesn't violate a Bible verse, but Bob should actually be thinking about Dan's growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, his spiritual growth, and if need be, become Dan's servant in order to see him grow. This is about people in local church community, in fellowship with one another. What are the priorities? Christian growth, what edifies? And those who are saved. Seeing people saved. So I'll say it again. The Christian should not be taking careless liberties, but should be living a determined, disciplined life for God. Does that describe your life? It's challenging. It challenges me. It should challenge you. Is your life determined? Are you thinking about what you can do to see growth in the body of Christ? Are you even thinking about the spiritual growth of the body of Christ around you? Is your inner circle of friends too small to see beyond that? Are you thinking about how your life might see the salvation of others? What you might need to do in order to become a servant to the lost so that they might be saved? That's how Paul is defining victory here. He's using himself as an example. And he's telling you, God's people, this is the right mind here. Challenging stuff. The sixth point in his argument. The Christian who thinks that he or she has made it should think again. This is verse 12 of chapter 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And if you want to know what the verses in between 9.24 and that 10.12 verse in between those two points are all about, it's all about Israel and Israel thinking that they had made it and being rescued from Egypt and going through the Exodus and having all these experiences and none of them but two actually making it into the promised land. And climaxing on that point, he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you are not living a disciplined life for the glory of God, which he defines as the growth of the church, locally, the people in the church around you, and the salvation of souls. If you are not in pursuit of that, if you are instead just thinking, I have arrived, and I've made it, I'm already on the podium. Be careful. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is a comfortability with achievement that is a danger for every human being. And you see it in the workplace. And you see it in sports too. But you also see it in marriages. Oh, I've done a good job. I've been a good person. I can relax now. I've had some success, I've had some achievement, I don't need to work hard anymore, I don't need to be hungry anymore, my life has cleaned up enough, I'm in good shape. 
And what begins to fall? Does it mean somebody reverts to some sort of heinous, over-the-top sin? Maybe. Oftentimes, you know what it is? I'm just not going to live very disciplined for the Lord anymore. And if we do this instead of this, it's okay. And if a little of this comes in, it's all right. It doesn't violate any rules. It's not breaking any scriptures. No one's going to confront me about church discipline. But there is a drop-off when it comes to running the race to win. And now we're simply jogging along because we've already put ourselves on the podium. Verse 6 of chapter 10. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As is written, the people sat down to play, rose up to drink or sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual morality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained were destroyed by the destroyer. All these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Last point that I'll make in summary. Do not participate in idol worship. And this is a point that we probably don't need to belabor, but it comes to us in verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, eating the meat doesn't condemn you. But if you eat the meat in the context of a worship service to these idols, a feast or a festival to these false gods... It's idolatry, and you should call it what it is, and don't justify it and pretend that it's not, and God is not going to be happy. Verse 22 of chapter 10, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? This is Paul's argument. It's a long answer, and at the end, I think he has a summary, and the summary is what I want to go through with you here briefly this morning. Just four points, and we'll be done, because I know that I've spent a lot of time leading up to it. See if the summary doesn't hit home a little bit more powerfully after having reviewed the three chapters here. Verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Christians are concerned about the spiritual growth of their fellow church members before their own freedoms. I think this is verse 23 and 24. All things are lawful. That's a Christian freedom. It's a statement of Christian freedom. This isn't illegal here. The food, you know, the clothing, whatever. It's not about that. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. The word edify means to build up, to strengthen. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. How are you, at this point in your life, at this point in your Christian walk, how are you demonstrably concerned with the spiritual growth of your fellow church members? I say demonstrably, let me just be clear. How would you demonstrate now look at my life here. I'm concerned about the spiritual growth of fellow church members. I'm concerned about their growth. How does that come out in your life? 
Christians are concerned about the spiritual growth of their church members. In Paul's instruction, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. How broadly is your circle of concern inside the local church that you are prayerfully considering the spiritual growth of the people around you and what you might do to see spiritual growth in their lives? This takes a disciplined approach. Um, you might have to actually structure some time to quietly go off on your own sometime throughout a week and think about people in the church and pray for them. You might have to send a note of encouragement or a phone call to somebody just to let them know. I want you to know I was thinking about you this week and, and uh, care about you. And I want you to serve the Lord and I want you to know that uh, I'll always support you in whatever you're going through as you try to serve the Lord. And you may not need to hear that, but that's where I am right now. And I just want to let you know, for whatever it's worth, I was thinking about you. You might have to send somebody a card or write somebody a note. You know, I, I've, I have been a pastor here now for nine years in a couple of months. And some of the most precious things that I get and that I keep are little cards or notes from church members just let me know that, that they care about me. And I have some of these taped up on the wall in my, my little office at home. It's more like a closet size, but it, it functions as an office. And I have these taped with scotch tape up on the wall um, from just a handful of people who've taken the time to write a note like that. Do you know how many teachers there are in this church? You know how many moms and dads are in this church? How many teenagers who don't think that anybody really knows them or really cares about them outside the people in the youth group? And it's not true. It's not true. Many of you have watched those little kids grow up to be the teenagers that they are and have been cheering and rooting for them and, and supporting them in VBS and Sunday school classes and fellowship events. And, and you do care about them, but they don't know. Because that's what teenage years do to you. And that's what discouraged mom and discouraged dad seasons do to you. But you'll never touch those lives except by sheer chance, seemingly. If you don't live a disciplined life that is actually concerned with the spiritual progress of the people of God around you. So how is that demonstrated in the life that you're living? Where is that? It's a wonderful thing to play that part. To just know I'm in the body of Christ and I'm concerned and I'm supporting the body of Christ around me. Are you doing that? Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you asking no question for conscience sake. Here I think is Paul's second summary. Christians are not looking for divisive issues. In other words, look, if you're just buying food at Kroger, don't stop and say, hey, can we get into the origin of where this was produced so that I can make a moral judgment about this for me and for everybody else? Ah, it's not what, ah, hold on now. I mean, that's essentially what they're dealing with here. You're going to go through the meat market in Corinth. A lot of that meat is going to come from 
bad origins. A lot of it's going to be secondhand bought from those temples that are sacrificing animals in there. Buy, eat whatever you buy in the meat market. Don't turn this into a debate over the origins of all that meat. What's his argument? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the judge of the sinners behind what was made. <laughs> God will take care of that. You've got to eat. Everybody's got to buy food. This is not like a luxury you can do without. <laughs> eat, buy what you've got to buy and, and don't turn this into a big debate in, in your church. Don't turn this into a big debate in the community. Now, don't go eat in the festivals and the worship services. He's already said that's idolatry. Don't think you're going to get away with it. But let's not go around looking for divisive issues to stir up amongst ourselves or the community. And if an unbeliever invites you over to dinner and they're getting ready to serve food, don't say, now before we eat, let me just ask, did you happen to buy this from the temple to Artemis down the road? Don't ask. Just leave it to the Lord. You're not contaminated by the food. The, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Okay, eat it and move on. I think this is a good reminder because you know what often gets in the way of spiritual growth is a whole lot of concern and energy into things that do not pertain to spiritual growth. Folks, we're trying to fight sin and become better husbands and better, better fathers, better mothers, better wives, better sons and daughters, better brothers and sisters. We're trying to grow spiritually in a meaningful way. We don't need to go looking for conflicts and divisive issues here. Let's simply deal with our spiritual growth and development. Let's not, let's not try to increase the difficulty. Let's try to live peaceably with all men if we can. We don't need to invent divisive issues. We have enough hard things to wrestle with here. Christians are not looking for a point of contention either with the world or inside the church. And then the pivot. Verse 28. But, if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, <laughs> if someone wants to announce the origin of this thing, when you're over there for dinner, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience's sake, for the earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, because the stronger Christian should not be pierced in the conscience. It's just food. You know, the stronger Christian shouldn't feel like he's eating something contaminated. I don't mean your own conscience, but that of the other person. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? He, he offers two two. Sides of an argument. I'm telling you, if someone says, hey, by the way, you know this lamb that we're getting ready to eat just came out of a temple sacrifice to a false god. What are you going to do with that, Christian? He says, don't eat it. And then somebody's going to say, well, why is my freedom limited by somebody else's conscience? He says, hey, that's a great point. You know what else is a good, good point? Why should we thank God for food and then cause other people to think evil of us while we eat it? That's a good point too. So don't do it. It's better to have your own freedoms limited than to have an unbeliever think that you are partaking in the worship of their God at the dinner table. That's what he's saying. It's better for an unbeliever to applaud your conviction than for you to exercise freedom knowing in your heart, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. You know? 
So don't go looking for divisive issues, but if somebody wants to say, this is Satan worship, and you say, no, it's not. It's not really Satan worship, but if that's what they're going to define it as, then abstain, abstain. Why? Because we don't want people thinking we worship idols and Satan by this behavior. Are you kidding? Don't do that. This goes back to the whole Japanese shrine thing that I told you about a couple weeks ago. You go to these ancient ruins and these shrines and these temples and sometimes you visit these places. I've never been to one, but I've read about it. And they expect you to engage in some of the worship acts as you go there, right? And you think, well, I don't really worship this God. I don't really, you know, believe in this idol. This is nothing spiritually convicting to me. Well, Paul says, don't have anything to do with it. You may not worship that God, but everybody's going to see you bowing and they're going to assume, well, so much the strength and the conviction of a Christian. You go to somebody's table and he offers you meat sacrificed to idols. He says, by the way, we're eating this in worship of Artemis. Well, then I'm going to take a hard pass because I don't worship Artemis. I worship Jesus Christ. Christians are to be sensitive to the feelings of those who are weaker. That's verses 28 through 30. Christians are to be thoughtful and sensitive about how their actions are going to have an influence on those who are weaker in their understanding of these things than they are. And if an idol-worshipping unbeliever thinks that a Christian is engaging in idolatry by eating a meal, a Christian should think through that and not do it. Last point, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. <clears throat> Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Christians are people who are more passionate about the salvation of others than their own rights, freedoms, or personal gain. Are you a Christian? How passionate are you about the salvation of others? Maybe you can answer fairly and say, you know, I'm really not. I don't think about it a lot. I just kind of go about my day and things happen and it's not that I don't want people to be saved but I don't really think about it. I'm certainly not trying to share the message of a Savior who died on the cross who stood in my place and shed His blood to make an offering for my sin before a righteous God who would otherwise condemn me but now has forgiven me and invited me into His family eternally. Those words don't roll off my lips. You know, I don't think about those things. Christian, you need to. You need to. Your spiritual growth is dependent upon serving the Lord with all your heart. You need to. Paul says this. Now look at this. Paul says, look at me as an example. I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And you might pause and say, time out. Well, that's Paul. He's an apostle. This is his job. I'm not the apostle Paul. 
No, I'm warehouse worker Reggie. I, I'm not. <laughs> That's not me. But then look at what he does in verse 1 of chapter 11, which should really go with verse 10, or with chapter 10. But look at what he says. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Man, if he had just not done that, we might have escaped here feeling pretty good about ourselves and saying this is just an apostle-like thing. But then he goes and does that. Imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. And isn't that what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So many times, we run into spiritual lulls in our life where nothing seems to be happening. And we don't seem to be growing. Maybe we're struggling with something that's sinful. Maybe we're not. But it's just, it doesn't feel very real. Let me ask you. In those times, are you prayerfully working towards the spiritual growth of the body of Christ around you? Are you disciplining yourself to contribute to the spiritual edification, the building up of the body of Christ? Probably not. Are you praying? Are you passionately committed to the salvation of the lost? So much so that even if no one gets saved, you can say, I am working diligently to become the servant of others that they might hear the gospel and be saved. Probably not happening in those spiritual down times. If we want to be transformed and experience spiritual growth, we need to be about the commission that we have been given here. We need to live as Christ. This is how Jesus lived. That's what Paul's doing. He's connecting all three of these chapters back to Jesus. Now, here's, we'll end here. Here is Paul in another passage. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Sound familiar? Don't just imitate me, but... Let this mind, let this way of thinking be in you because this is what was in Christ Jesus. That is, let each of you look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. Let each of you esteem others better than himself. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is Philippians 2, verse 5. You want the reference. And here's Jesus. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Sound familiar? Becoming a servant to all? Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. I cannot fathom being God and being born into this world as a man. But being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He served. Jesus Christ served you. He did what was necessary for your salvation. He won a great number to eternity. He did what was necessary for your spiritual growth. He did what was necessary for your marriage. He did what was necessary for your children. He did what was necessary for your job. 
He became a servant and he served. He humbled himself and since he was in the form of a servant, that's what it is to be a man and a woman. If you are a man, if you are a woman, and that's everybody in this room, you were created in the likeness of God to serve him. And being found in the form of a man, Jesus Christ served. And then in Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted him. Because that's what men and women are supposed to do. Serve. And if you want to experience the power of God in your life, you don't need to pray for a retirement home at a beach somewhere. And you don't need to speak in tongues. And you don't need to have some great charismatic experience. If you want to experience the power of God in your life, live a disciplined life concerned with the spiritual growth of others whom God has centered you around in the local church and the salvation of the lost in your community. You will experience the power of God. It will not be like anything else you've experienced. This morning, in just a minute, we're going to have a baptism. Someone who is not saved and who was destined for eternity in hell heard the good news of Jesus Christ, placed their faith in the work of Jesus Christ for their forgiveness, and was made a child of God's kingdom forever and ever and will live the rest of his life growing in wisdom and understanding before the Lord and being a blessing to those around him. Because someone was concerned with his salvation. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring the gospel. Now that, when you get to have any part of it, is the power of God. Not your bank account. Not your liberties and your freedoms. But when you know that sacrificing and serving has led to the eternal salvation in someone's life, that is the power of God. You will grow doing that. Otherwise, anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for another baptism and for the salvation that you brought about in someone's life. Thank you for those faithfully serving. Thank you for the great many people around our congregation this morning who genuinely are concerned about the growth of Christians and genuinely concerned about the salvation of those who are lost. And Father, thank you for all those who you saved who placed their faith in you this morning and give us all a heart of compassion towards those who you've put us in Christian fellowship with and those who are unbelievers around us. Give us a heart of compassion and help us to look and examine our lives to be sure that we have a disciplined approach to serving, to loving, to ministering, and to sharing the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now in the form of these offerings and help us to be wise with their use. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.